Alright, welcome back to lecture 9 on Dante's The Divine Comedy 2019. Today we're talking about the suicides, circle 7, subcircle 2, the blasphemers, circle 7, subcircle 3, and the old man of Crete. And we are going to go pretty fast today. Alright, today we're going to begin with a slight Italian lesson. Something I want to show you about when we enter Canto 13. So Canto 13 is a very uh, touchy canto. Touchy, literally speaking, because you have to touch and injure the trees, which are former suicides, or people who committed suicide, who have now turned into sort of shrubs and trees. And in order for them to speak, they are now very much passive. You have to rip a piece of them off so they can speak. And so we begin to see that there's a very, there's a very interesting idea behind this idea of suicide. Uh, there's a connection between suicide and negation, or suicide and passivity. And even if you look at the language of the Italian in the very beginning, of Canto 13, you see a word repeated over and over again in the first three terses. That word is none, 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 not, 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 not. That is the word for negation in our language. And so even in the language itself, you can see that these people have negated themselves. And just a little bit of the Italian non era. Ancor di la nesso arrivato quando noi ci matimo per un bosco che da neon sentiero era segnato. Uh, you know, and uh, then non fronda verde, non ramischietti, non pomi vera, non hansi aspre. Nessus had not yet, no green leaves, no branches straight and smooth, no fruits were there. It's as if the very description is negation itself. It's like you get no positive description of what is actually there. You only get a description of what is not there. And so you start to begin to see that that is how we perceive people who have committed suicide, because now we see them for the fact that they are not there. And I just wanted to show that to you, that even at the language, uh, or even at the level of the language itself, you can see Dante's thinking behind these sins. Uh, I also wanted you to notice that, the, of course, the Terex Rima continues on, Fosco, Fosco, Tosco there. Um, notice that the negations are at the very beginning, and that this circle starts with negation. And so the idea seems to be that suicide starts by negation of the will by itself, which is, uh, well, part of the nature of the sin for Dante. All right, in any case, let's get into the specifics. The suicides, they are specifically violent against self. Recall that we just got from the violent against others. Those were the highway robbers, murderers, and tyrants. They were in a boiling blood lava lake. All right, it's a boiling, uh, it is a sorry, river of boiling blood called Phlegathon. But now we get a very different scape, a dark forest, a dark forest that reminds us very much of Canto One and where Dante found himself, making us think that perhaps he was himself in danger of joining this forest of suicides. And so what is the punishment of these who are violent against self? Well, they're gnarled trees. They're turned into their vegetative soul, so, so Aristotle would say. They're no better than a bush, as he would say in his metaphysics. They're now gnarled trees, which must have a piece ripped off to speak in gasp and pain. There are harpies, as you can see in this image by Gustave de Ray here, in the branches that will do that occasionally at some interval, like some of the demons who will be whipping panderers and seducers in Circle 8, Bolgia 1, um, or like those who, with the schismatics later down in the Bolgias, will cut them in half. There is also a second sort of center in the violent against self. There are suicides and there are squanderers. Squanderers are people that squandered their wealth and property. They are extremely similar 
to those in circle four who were called prodigal. They waste everything they had. And in fact, they have a slightly different punishment. They, like Acteon from Ovid's Metamorphoses, get ripped apart by dogs. Um, yeah, in any case, that's what I wanted to say here. All right. As I was saying earlier, part of the idea behind this punishment is one is reduced to one's vegetative soul. One uses one's human's, human intellect to use one's human will to deprive oneself of one's human will. And so the idea, at least in an Aristotelian sense, seems to be that one deserves to be a plant because a plant is a sort of thing that grows without thinking, that does not have willpower. And if you are willing to give up your willpower and not make choices, well then, are you any better? than a plant? And, well, you know, that's a, sort of a sad question that Dante asks. In any case, the punishment seems to be directly related not only to the ideas of Aristotle, but also to uh, the Aeneid Book 3, where we met Polydorus. Recall that Polydorus was the youngest son of Priam, who was betrayed by a local ally, where he was kept safe during the Trojan War. He himself was stabbed with so many spears that were left inside of him that he turned into a bush, and recall that when Aeneas, with his men, went through Thrace, they, uh, they ran into this bush. They tried to pull one of the branches out. It bled. Apollodorus asked, why are you ripping me? And so this is a direct uh, reference, allusion, back to the Aeneas. Did you have a question over here? Um, what was number three? Uh, quote, don't worry about number three. It starts at four and five on this slide. In any case, good. All right. We don't have time to go through the entire speech of Pierre Delavigne here. Luckily, we did have the WDP on it. But um, just I want you to remember that Pierre Delavigne was, his name literally means Peter of the Vine, and he was a courtier to a Holy Roman Emperor in the middle of the 13th century named Frederick II, Frederick of Hohenstaufen, who we've heard of before, who we will hear of again. He was the personal secretary. He is the one who decided who gets to talk to him and who doesn't. And if you got to speak to him, you got to ask him for things. And so it was very lucrative to be the personal secretary to him. It would be like these days being like the personal secretary to Kanye or something like that. Like, you get to talk to him, maybe he'll give you millions and millions of dollars for your charity. But if you don't get to talk to him, he's probably not going to. And so he held great power at this time. In any case, he said that he had two keys to the heart of this man. And so, you start to see something interesting about Peter. He shares his name with Peter, who was the first pope, so-called Petros, or Kephos, one of the twelve apostles. Also, he shares the connection in that he says he had two keys to his Lord's heart. Well, Peter the apostle is known to have had the two keys to heaven. One golden, power, one silver, discernment. And so, you're starting to see that part of the problem with this Peter is he treats his Lord as if he is the Lord. He treats Frederick II, a secular authority, as if he is himself God. That would make Peter, then, an apostle. He seems to have an inflated, incorrect sense of his own self-importance. And so, when Envy, the common uh, lady of the night of courts, as he describes it, um, afflicts the minds of those around him, and he loses his rank, is stripped of his rank, he is stripped of his self-importance. He becomes a different person in his own mind. He cannot handle it. He decides to negate his will with his will. He commits suicide. 
And as we know from writing, and we will be writing on this today, it is the envy of others which he blames for his suicide, rather than his own personal lack. It's hard to judge in this case, but he blames envy rather than taking personal responsibility for his choice. Because certainly if he did commit suicide, which is an act by definition of the will negating the will, then who willed for him for his will to be negated? Well, he did himself. So he is responsible himself. And so the 13 reasons why are one reason why. And the one reason why he died is himself. And so that is what Dante is saying here. In any case, as I mentioned earlier, the second sort of sinner that we find here are the squanderers. The squanderers are people who squander their wealth, their time, and their talents. They are running through this forest while branches are being ripped off by dogs following They have a pack of wild dogs following them. This is also based on a piece of Roman literature. However, unlike the Aeneid by Virgil, this comes from Ovid's Metamorphoses. And in fact, it's a very sad story. This guy Acteon accidentally saw Diana Artemis nude in the forest, and then she turned him into a deer, and then his own, uh, his own hounds chase him down and rip him apart while his friends say, Huh, it would be so great if Acteon were here. He'd be having such a great time. He still has the mind of a human while he's a deer. So he's like hearing this great irony, like, I'd be having a good time, like crunch his face is getting bitten off, and he does get killed by his own hounds. That is what this punishment is based on. And it's pretty horrific. I don't know if you've ever seen a canine unit attack somebody from one of those cars before, but it, uh, you know, from a canine special unit car uh, on the police force, but it is terrifying. And those cops do not catch up to those canine units very fast, and they are ripping with very sharp, mean teeth. Uh, dogs? Dogs are very effective tools, uh, tools of defense, uh, you might say, also of offense. In any case, not just sweet. Moving on, moving on. The violent against God. So now we move from subcircle two to subcircle three. Recall that subcircle three is itself split into three subcircles. It is split into those violent against God, nature, and art. We will find here those who are blasphemers, those who speak against that which is holy. Very similar to heresy, slightly different, however, and importantly different, just like how squandering is slightly different from prodigality. Apparently, the, you know, there's an edge of violence to these. Uh, we will also find the sodomites, those violent against nature. Bernetta Latini is there. We'll briefly touch on him. And also, we find the violent against art. We will find usurers, those who charge inordinate amounts of interest for money that they loan to others. What the scape looks like here is, again, very different from the first two circles. First circle, river of boiling blood. You're submerged based on how much blood you spilled in life. Second circle, you're, there's a dark forest with hounds running through it and harpies in the trees. Now we find a burning desert, a desert with burning sand and burning rain falling down from it so that head to toe you are being burned. And in fact, part of the punishment here is that if you stop running for one moment, you will have to lie prostrate, supine, on the sand with your entire back being harmed while the rain hits you on the top for 100 total years. So that sounds pretty terrible. In any case, the first blasphemer that we meet is named Capanius. And very interesting here is that were blasphemy a specifically Christian sin like heresy was, 
when one chooses to believe and act differently from those who believe dogma or doctrine, blasphemy is represented by an ancient Greek character. And so, uh, just to mention, in the great co course's Chaucer lectures, the brilliant professor actually does make a small mistake there. He says that the Seven at Thebes War happens after the Trojan War. That is very much incorrect. It is the case that Sthenelus, son of uh, Capaneus, was one of the fighters at the Trojan War. Well, his father, Capaneus, died at the war against Thebes, meaning that the war against Thebes happened before the Trojan War, and so I just thought I would mention that. In any case, this Capaneus, who was the father of Sthenelus, and remember that Sthenelus was a minor character in the Iliad who was the lieutenant of Diomedes, a much bigger character. Diomedes' father, Tidius, was one of the compatriots of Capaneus, who also died at the Seven Against Thebes, uh, which was the fight between Polynices and Antiochus, the two sons of Oedipus, for Thebes, after Oedipus. Uh, sadly, I, I don't know that he'd actually died by that point. He had recused himself. He might have been around Colonus at that time. I believe that, that might be the case. Uh, no, no, he might have died. I have to get my uh, mythological chronology straight there. Uh, in any case, this Capanius, why is he here? Well, the story is fairly, um, fairly funny, I would say. He, during the battle at the War of the Seven Against Thebes, climbed the stronghold of Thebes and yelled at the sky, saying, Jove, are you real? Or are you just a tale meant to scare women and children? And so Jove, wanting to prove his reality, then fulminated him. Fulminated means threw a lightning bolt at him and lit him on fire until he died. And so how did Capaneus die? By climbing a stronghold, a stronghold, yelling at Zeus, Jove, and then being fulminated, being hit by a lightning bolt. And so blasphemy is speaking against the gods, whether they be Christian or not. And so that's how it differs from heresy, which is a specifically Christian sin. All right, now, in this Canto 14, which we've just entered, and this is the last thing we're going to focus on today because we only have a few minutes before our WDP, we find the origin of the four rivers of hell explained. Acheron, the first one we went by, Styx, Phlegathon, and Cocytus. We also actually hear about Lethe, another river. But that river will not be in hell, it will be at the top of the Purgatorio, the Mount Purgatory. And unlike in the Aeneid, where Lethe is in the underworld. Well, we hear about this old man of Crete, this, this, this statue, which is apparently on Crete, which I would like to say much more about, but probably not today just because of our limited time. There are five parts to this old man of Crete. A golden head uncracked. No crack there. Silver arms, the crack begins there. And chest. Brass to the waist. Iron below except for clay on the right foot. And so, just a couple things about this old man of Crete, which I have represented by William Blake up here. The old man of Crete is based on the idea that Crete was once the pinnacle of civilization. In fact, the Minoan Greeks, one of the first uh, Greek civilizations alongside the Mycenaean, came from a place called Crete. This is why King Minos, the first ever mythological king, is based in Crete. This is also the birthplace of Jupiter, which is highly provocative. The, the birthplace of the first king of men and the king of the gods would be on the same island where Mount Ida happens to be. Well, now this Crete, this place of 
that was once the pinnacle of civilization is barren. And so perhaps you might symbolically understand that, that uh, the height of culture, its place, and uh, what fulfills that place has been replaced. In fact, in the height of culture for Dante is now uh, somewhere around Florence, so not necessarily Florence given his understanding, and is no longer represented by the Greek religion, but rather by his Roman Catholicism. In any case, these rivers, the rivers of the ancient civilization alone, without leaking, seem to lead down to hell. And there's more we could say about that, but I just want to give you two ways to look at these different metals that are in the Old Man of Crete. The Old Man of Crete seems to be made of gold, silver, brass slash bronze, iron, and clay, because there was an old idea that goes all the way back to Hesiod, that there were four ages of man. And actually, sometime, Hesiod actually has a fifth age. Ovid has four. And those ages were these. That there was a golden age, a silver age, a bronze age. Hesiod also includes a hero's age, a heroic age. That's the time uh, uh, of the war at Thebes as well as the Trojan War, just two generations of the ages of hero. Um, and the, the current generation are people who are actually made from stones that were thrown by the two people who survived the Great Flood in the ancient world, which are Deucalion and Pyrrha, very similar to the Noah account in the Old Testament, uh, also very similar to the um, Sumerian account of the Flood that you hear mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh tablets. And anyway, some, one way to interpret what the meaning of this Old Man of Crete is, is that these different ages reflect different empires that have come to preeminence and then have passed away. Golden, the Babylonian Assyrian Empire. 3,000 years old, the most powerful at one time, followed then by the Persian Empire that was for some time all-powerful, followed then by the Hellenistic Empire ruled by Alexander that ruled the world for some time, that then fell to the Iron Roman Empire. And now we have, the, and the, we would then interpret the clay, the foot that's on the ground now as sort of perhaps our time. Usually people interpret our time to be the time of iron, though. However, there is another way to look at the interplay between iron and clay, which is iron is the power of the state, the clay is the power of the faith. The idea being that biblically, man was made from clay. And so, uh, that could be part of our time. In any case, there's also a theological interpretation. You don't need to know all of this right now, but I am going to say it to you. It comes from Richard of St. Victor's De Eruditio Hominis Interioris Libertres, uh, which suggests that the, um, the different colors represent different states of mind, or levels of moral perfectibility or imperfectibility. One who is gold has an uncorrupted will, does not sin, seems to be a perfect human, uh, probably just an idea rather than an actuality. Silver is reason corrupted by error, so somebody who has reason but makes errors, that might be someone who's malicious. Bronze, somebody whose will is corrupted by malice, that also sounds pretty malicious. Iron, somebody who is subject to one's appetites. Clay, someone who is also subject to a different appetite, uh, according to St. Thomas Aquinas, you don't need to know that, it's very technical, philosophical stuff. And, um, well, that's the second way to interpret this. You can interpret the old man of Crete as representing different psychological states or different political states. People have done it uh, differently throughout time. Mostly you need to know that the old man of Crete is made of differing substances. 
and that he definitely is something. Something else I just want to mention to you to show here is that I've, reading, I've been reading through Don Quixote, which is a 17th century Spanish sort of satirical epic. You see even there mention of the age of gold and silver. Happy the age, happy the time to which the ancients gave the name of golden, not because in that fortunate age the gold so coveted in this our iron one was gained without toil, but because they lived in it, knew not the two words mine and thine. So these ideas are extremely old ideas. You can go all the way back to Hesiod, 8th century BCE, read his works in days. You'll see evidence of a golden age. Ovid, 1st century BCE, his Metamorphoses, he talks about the golden age. Uh, Dante, 14th century, obviously that's what we're reading, talks about the golden age. Cervantes, 17th century, Spanish, talks about the golden age. All these people write and speak in different languages, by the way. Hesiod, ancient Greek, ancient Greek religion. Ovid, uh, Roman, Roman imperial religion. Dante, Italian. Roman Catholicism, Cervantes, Spanish, Roman Catholicism. And then we even use Golden Age today. Uh, we talk about the Golden Age of automobiles um, in the middle of the 20th century. We talk about the Golden Age of television right now, um, which you might, <laughs> you might be able to judge a culture based on what they consider their Golden Age to be. And if our Golden Age happens to be the age of TV, well, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe it's not the greatest Thing. In any case, that's all we have time for today. That's all you need to know for the quiz. Tomorrow, everything away. Let's get ready for the WDP.